Well, since the church has existed, it's always had to work out how is it going to exist under or alongside the state? Um, how is it going to coexist with the governing authorities? Um, example one from uh, um, my background. A church I was in had a woman from a Jehovah's Witness background in it. And from that Jehovah's Witness background, she developed a really negative view of government. She would always talk about the government and the system. The system. We have to watch out for the system. And so the government was a bit like an antichrist for her. She was against voting. She was against Christians receiving welfare. Uh, and she wanted our church to be adopting more of a fortress mentality against the world. A second example, an Anglican minister in a large rural town. Most of the town there aren't truly Christian, but over half of the town, perhaps 70%, would say they're Anglican. The minister in the town is God's man. Uh, The Church of England was in that place, the Church of Australia, our church. Historically woven into the social fabric. Crown and bishop go hand in hand. And the town comes together for christenings and weddings and funerals. For better and for worse, the town needs Anglicanism and Anglicanism is a pillar of the town. Uh, when I was a pastor in a small town as well, we'd have people in our church working for the council, uh, the council being generous towards our church and supporting church initiatives, uh, working in harmony together. So how is the church to relate with the state and how are we as Christians to view the authorities over us? Well, I think a mistake of Christendom um, has been to think that the world is or should be under the church's authority. Um, And so that could lead us to think that the schools or um, councils or governments should support nativity scenes or carols. It's nice when they do, but the first century church wouldn't have dreamed of expecting that. The world isn't under the church's authority. We can speak to the world, we can ask for the nativity scene, but it's not under our authority. The world isn't under the church's authority, and yet the Lord of the church is Lord of all. The Lord of the church is truly the Lord of all. The king of the church just happens to be also the king of kings. That's why we worship him, whether those kings and kingdoms recognize him or not. And as the sirens in the background, we'll be talking about the the benefits of things like sirens and aid workers. But how does the gospel lead Christians to treat governing authorities then? Well, inspired by God, Paul says firstly that let every soul submit to the governing authorities in verses 1 and then in verse 5. Secondly, we'll hear Paul explain why that is, verses 2 to 5. And thirdly, we'll, we're given examples of what this means in practice, verses 6 to 7. So principle, explanation, and then examples. First, then, the principle. And the NIV translation begins, chapter 13, verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Reiterating the point there. Now, two things to note from this opening sentence. A literal translation of this would have it, let every soul be subject to. I wonder why he uses the word soul there to get across this idea. It could be that it's every single person, every soul, and that it's not merely a bodily compliance as well. They might make my body do something, but I'm not willing to do it. Uh, there's, There's a sense of our will in there as well, perhaps. 
Let every soul be subject to or submit to the governing authorities. It doesn't say mindlessly obey or be in blind subjection, but it is leading us to recognise their place in the order of things. I think that's the sentiment to it. Recognise their place in the order of things. That Christianity is by no means an anti-government movement. Christianity is not an anti-government movement. Let every soul may also be Paul's choice of words because there is something voluntary and mutual in it. He could have said obey, but he uses the softer expression that souls submit themselves to the authority. Why is that? Well, because point two, the explanation begins in the second half of verse one. The authorities that exist have been established by God. That's why we obey. Now, this might raise instant questions for you as it does for me and problems. Some of us might instantly go to the worst governments in the world. I think this week we're praying for North Korea as a church. Um, The Taliban in Afghanistan, uh, tyrannical governments in Cambodia in the past or Russia. In Germany, the the German pastor-theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer reluctantly, but I think rightly, opposed and undermined Hitler's regime in order to obey God when he was forced with that choice. The Apostle Paul, of course, knows this isn't easy as well. He's writing this letter to churches in Rome, the capital of a huge empire which would persecute countless Christians in the decades to come. We speak of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and it sounds really nice, but it was peace established and maintained with brutal force. We have peace because no one stands in our way. Our Lord Jesus himself was beaten, mocked and crucified by Roman authorities but partnering with hard-hearted Jewish religious governors. And so Paul was more experienced than most of us today with unjust governments and yet he insists there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. As Jesus says to the Roman governor Pilate in John chapter 19, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. The truth that God is sovereign even over the rebellious, tyrant rulers, I find deeply comforting in our troubled world. The David who would be unaware of the King of Kings may feel parts of the world are out of control. But the David who knows the King of Kings can let God be God and to see Jesus as the ultimate answer for every nation and every ruler. Now, I say this not dismissively, but I take it that even the worst governments are almost always better than no governance at all. Restrained anarchy beats anarchy. When it's every man for himself, even, or even when there aren't quotas on toilet rolls during a pandemic, things can get ugly. In America, there was a very temporary social experiment that followed the naive defund police movement. Let's get rid of police and we'll be happy. 911 calls spiked within those police-free districts, begging for the police to come and try to get order where there was disorder. It seems the removal of deterrence and fear of consequences so quickly brought out the worst in some people. The well-known Psalm 19 says, that heaven, The heavens declare the glory of God. And here, Romans 13 says something similar that governments too declare the glory of God and give us reason to praise him. 
Just as we might look at to the bees or the ants and marvel at the way they organise themselves and their structure and order, so too we can look at the order of social society, the way God has made us to be ordered and to see that the only alternative to that would be anarchy and that he oversees the ordering. It's not as though we purely do it ourselves. Next, Paul explains in verses 2 to 5 why it is right and wise for Christians and indeed every person to submit ourselves to these governments. Consequently, he writes, verse 2, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So it seems there's a double disobedience when we disobey our authorities because to rebel against God's agent one level of disobedience, is to rebel against God himself. When I was in high school, some of the boarders in our high school got into serious trouble on a boring, slow weekend and they got up to mischief. And they involved themselves in cruelty to a number of animals on our school farm. Um, They first felt the disappointment and the anger of the principal when it was discovered. But then a second round of disappointment came from their parents as the principal who had been authorised to manage and govern the children reported to them what had happened. And further consequences came at home after being suspended or expelled. Churches or churchgoers who willfully disobey authority shouldn't expect God to preserve them from the legal system doing its job. The fines and penalties and imprisonments that might follow and there are some famous cases that are taking place even now, investigations into the use of funds by churches. The judgment from authorities, verse 2, is a mild form of God's judgment, but a really valuable one. Paul explains further with two for statements and one therefore statement in verses 3 to 5. Verse 3 says, Four rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. Now Paul is speaking in general terms here. It's generally true in most places that most governments will reward good and punish the bad. But he knows the story of Jesus. He knows of John the Baptist, beheaded, executed for no good reason. He knows about the church in Acts, his own mistreatment. But generally speaking, most governments most of the time, reward good and punish bad. And this is a blessing we can praise God for, as Paul points out for us. And again there in verse 4, we see God's goodness in the goodness of governments. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So Christianity and the church are certainly not to be safe havens for sin against God or rebellion against society's rules. Sometimes you get that sentiment from Christians, I obey God, not the state, or I've, I've got, I'm free in Christ to do this or that. Instead, we can give God much thanks for our politicians, public servants, federal and local police, the legal system, our courts and judges and barristers, lawyers and jurors, who contribute to a legal process that is imperfect, but so much better than none. We can thank God for those we often complain about, heritage officers officers who say we can't knock down a wall, 
Now, that can be annoying. It might be irrational, might be unreasonable. But you can see the principle is good. Or parking officers who provide a sting to discourage people from overstaying their welcome in very popular places. Some Christians, too, can put up our hands for some of these roles. There might be teenagers here who take up one of these roles in future. Um, knowing that there is a divine pleasure in these vocations. You are, verse 4, God's servant for good of the world. And those servants of God, delivering the strong word there in verse 4, these agents of wrath who punish wrongdoers, should also be appreciated and thanked for their difficult work. Yeah, the police and, the, and legal professionals spend a lot of time in society's darkest places for the rest of us. Further in verse 5 we read, Therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Uh, you can have a clearer conscience when you are not only a Christian, but a law-abiding Christian. That's God's design, his purpose. And may I say, if your conscience is not clear before the law this morning, and you know you've done wrong or are doing wrong, that you take it to God today. You might ask a trusted Christian what you might do about resolving it. We've had a look at the principles, uh, the explanation, and thirdly now, examples of how this will look for us in practice in verses 6 to 7. Now, there seems to be something helpful about the saying that there are two certainties in life, death and taxes. And Paul includes taxes in his theology about how to live as Christians. He's explaining why it's good that Christians continue paying taxes in verse 6. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Now, the phrase God's servants here, I think, is a generous one. It's a kind one. It's the one used for very important roles in the Old Testament, like being a priest, a servant of God, or a prophet, or in the New Testament, a minister or servant of the gospel. Just as we might not expect much gratitude to those who order and govern society, sorry, ex express much gratitude, um, so too you don't hear many people in Australia express much gratitude that they can pay tax, unless you move in different circles to, to mine. But imagine the accountant. I, I, I take it they don't hear every day. Look, I'm looking for an accountant who can help me contribute a bit more money to God's servants. I want to pay my fair share and perhaps a bit more if that can be arranged. Is there a way I can do that without misleading the government, being dishonest by overstating my income? Or is there a space on the website, a donation link for the ATO? Rather, we hear stories of even the super wealthy somehow avoiding a cent of income tax. But it seems culturally normal for the rich and poor alike to re resent paying taxes, to pay as little as possible, and to lie on our tax returns. But whether we consider ourselves rich or poor, we need not be among the resentful, the stingy, the lying, if we are God's people. We might be right to question gov the government's efficiency with money. I could spend it better than they will. Yet while you and I are working, shopping, relaxing, enjoying a wonderfully orderly society, 
It's because of our taxes, verse 6, that some are able to give their full time to governing on behalf of us all. If you go and have a look at Canada Bay's um, website, you can see all the things they've been doing through the last year as the, it counts up, inquiries responded to, books loaned, um, all kinds of things. They're, they're busy at work. Verse 7 moves out from taxes to a more general readiness to give what is due. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you if revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And how quickly our social problems would just dissolve away if we had this widespread respect and honour going on in society. We might get this good ball rolling more and more as God's people here. It might be a phone call, a word of thanks to your employer, your team leader, your manager, the CEO. It may be you buck the trend in the staff room by speaking well of the principal or the head of the department. It could be you honour the cleaner or the temp worker who's doing an important role in the office but people others just ignore. It could be many of us make contact with a local MP or council and thank them for their work. Our kids too might notice we only honour and speak well of their teachers and their school principal. Of course, we could seek to really master these things as a family, as a body, a church community, honouring, respecting one another. If we're married, to ensure our spouse is deeply respected and honoured, not only as a fellow human being, but one who has entrusted so much of their welfare into our lives. Sometimes submitting to the government is complex, difficult, stressful, or becomes unethical and impossible. Medical practitioners, for example, in our congregation may be expected to follow the government's line on assisted dying, or teachers expected to get on board with the latest ideology that may be harmful to kids. And so as a church family and in home groups, we may need to wrestle these things through. How are we to do this? Well, how do I bring this together that it's not just a, uh, a sermon on moralism, obey the law, be good citizens? The thief on the cross comes to mind as I hold all of these things together. He's on the cross next to Jesus for his civil disobedience. He's taking Rome's punishment on the chin. But he's even more concerned about the way he has wronged God in his life. What will God make of him when the human execution process takes him into God's holy presence. That's what he's concerned about. By coming to Jesus, yes, he still received the human court's punishment for sin, but more importantly, he avoided, avoided the much worse judgment from God's hand. Let me read the account from Luke chapter 23. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our de deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
Friends, whatever you may have done or are doing, it may be lies to the ATO, plagiarism. It may be you remember cheating on an exam or in a relationship, stolen from an employer, lied to the RMS or other agencies for convenience or to save some money, sinned sexually in some way, perhaps even many years ago. You too can find that same instant forgiveness in Jesus and only in Jesus. Condemnation from the world can be terrible, scary. But compared to God's assessment, if you are not yet a forgiven Christian, then human courts, human shaming, human cancelling, human judgments, human consequences are the least of your problems. It's God, my friends, most need from my high school days to be reconciled with after those cruel acts to the animals while also saying sorry to mum and dad, perhaps saying sorry to the principal, it's God we all need reconciliation with. That's what the book of Romans is actually all about, in which we find this chapter. How to make peace with God, how to be righteous in God's sight. And so may we learn from the criminal today, the wise criminal. He knew he had sinned. He sensed Jesus' goodness. He asked for mercy And so in God's wonderful kindness, he so freely received it.